This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and this episode, we are going on one of the world's most challenging and extreme adventures. Rebecca Stevens is the first British woman to climb Mount Everest, which is pretty impressive in itself, but she's also the first British woman to complete the Seven Summits Challenge. That is climbing the seven highest peaks on each of the seven continents. It's an accomplishment that only a few people around the world have ever achieved, and she's going to take us to the top of every single one of them. Are you ready to go climb some mountains? Yeah, me too. Let's go. So we're going up Everest, we're going up Denali, we're going up Kilimanjaro, Aconagua, and all the rest. But this story is about more than just mountaineering. One of the things that makes Rebecca special and one of the things I absolutely love about her is that on each one of these climbs, she learned something. She took away a piece of wisdom, a unique piece of wisdom that she couldn't have learned any other way. And one of the things that she spent her life doing since she completed the Seven Summits back in 1994 is working with individuals and businesses to pass on that wisdom, that wisdom she learned in the mountains and which I think we could all really benefit from too. So we're going on an adventure, but we're also going to learn some really cool stuff along the way that will help us in our own lives, scaling our own mountains, whatever they may be. If you want to find out more about Rebecca, you can go to RebeccaStevens.com. She has two books out as well, which I will link to on the webpage, On Top of the World, which was about her ascent of Everest, and The Seven Summits of Success. She's also a mountain guide and leads private expeditions, mostly to Kilimanjaro and the Himalaya, but really anywhere you'd like to go. And how awesome would that be to go climbing the world's most beautiful mountains with one of the world's greatest mountaineers? That website again is RebeccaStevens.com. So we're about to get going. But before we do, remember, if you're enjoying this show, one way you can support it is by spreading the word. We are building a community of people that love exploring, that love this amazing planet of ours and want to celebrate it by just jumping head first in. If that sounds like you, you're in the right place. Come and hang out. Bring a friend. We're all going to get on super well. I'd also love it if you would sign up to the newsletter at armchair-explorer.com where you can also find background information, photos and more about each episode as well as book trips inspired by the show. Something new and exciting I want to tell you about as well. I have set up an adventure travel agency, an adventure agency to help you plan out that next big dream trip. I've been working as a travel writer for the likes of National Geographic and the London Times for coming up to about 15 years now. And and I want to use that expertise to help you have your ultimate adventure in the most positive and sustainable and coolest way possible. If that sounds like fun, that's another great way you can support the show. Just reach out to me through the website or by emailing Aaron, that's double A-R-O-N, at armchair-explorer.com. But don't worry about all that right now, because right now, snow is drifting off the mountaintops in the Himalayas. It's cold, but the sun is shining, and Rebecca 
is about to take us on the trip that changed her life, her first real taste of the mountains. I kind of feel that when I went to the Himalayas in my late 20s, um, it felt like a coming home. I didn't really realize that in the moment, perhaps, but as time went on, I realized it just seemed to be the natural environment for me. And I had that opportunity to go to the Himalayas as a journalist. Um, and I think it was probably the most exciting trip of my life. I think, you know, those first trips when everything is colorful and bright and intense and, you know, a first, um, it was just incredibly exciting. Rebecca went there as a journalist. She had absolutely no mountaineering experience. She was reporting for the Financial Times and she was supposed to just stay in base camp to not do anything risky and just give a layman's view of what it was like to stand at the foot of the world's greatest mountain. But she fell in love with it. She writes, I love the simplicity of life away from the telephone and nagging deadlines. I love the challenge of making myself at home and comfortable with no more than could be jammed into a single rucksack. And more than anything, I loved where I found myself, surrounded by the highest mountains in the world. But just being surrounded by those mountains wasn't quite enough for her. So she decided to do something kind of crazy, and it changed her life. It was there that I wanted to get a taste of going onto the mountain proper because I couldn't really grasp why everybody that was surrounding me was so passionate about this climb. And I wanted a taste of it myself to see what it was about. Um, and it was then that the climbers, Americans and British, uh, on this Anglo American expedition I was on, really sort of took a step back and seemed a bit reticent that I should go up to this first camp. And of course, they were worried, I think, that, you know, I'd have an injury or get pulmonary edema or something like that and mess up the expedition for them. But there was a Sherpa, his name was Chuang, and I will never, ever forget him as long as I live because he couldn't really see a reason why I wouldn't want to go up there and shouldn't go up there. I crossed the glacier from the advanced base camp and found myself at the foot of the mountain proper of Bill's Buttress, it's called, at the end of the Northeast Ridge. Um, they fixed ropes, the climbers, up to the first camp. It was on mixed terrain, steep terrain. I had crampons on my feet for the first time in my life. And I clipped onto that rope and started climbing. At first, she just went up to what's called Advanced Base Camp, or ABC, as climbers call it. And that was all perfectly acceptable. She'd been up there a couple times, but it wasn't quite enough for Rebecca. She wanted to go higher. So the climb she's starting now was up something called Bill's Buttress, which is basically a steep 40-degree slope that rises straight out of the East Rongbuk Glacier and then climbs up the northeast ridge of Everest. She would be climbing from 21,000 feet at Advanced Base Camp to over 23,000 feet at Camp 1. Proper climbing, proper altitude, proper risk, and proper gutsy. Climbing Bill's Buttress was hard work um, and cloud cover came, there was some avalanches peeling off slopes unseen for us. Um, but we kept going and got up to that first camp, it took about, I don't know, nine or 10 hours. And yeah, I mean, that was my day of conversion. That was, you know, sitting up in that camp and realising that, you know, I could look at the other side of the valley, I could look up to the summit of Everest, I could look down on the North Col where Mary and Irvin had last been seen. And I just thought, this is 
amazing. I felt just so alive, just, you know, like electricity buzzing through me. It was fabulous. And that was the moment I decided. Coming down that day, I I just loved it more and more and more and thought about it and realised this was something I wanted to do and that one day I should come back and climb it properly. Looking back, she writes, that day on Bill's buttress was an experience unparalleled in my life. The remoteness and beauty, the pushing of physical limits, the extreme turns of weather, the relief and the sheer unadulterated joy. She had answered that age-old mystery, why do we climb? And it was more than simply because it's there. Those famous three words uttered by George Mallory, one of Everest's early pioneers, It was because it lit her up. It gave her a sense of freedom and joy she had never experienced in her life before. More than just finding out the reason why people climb, she had caught the bug herself. But she wasn't ready for Everest, quite yet. Camp 1 was the highest she made it that year, and certainly there were no thoughts of the Seven Summits at this stage either. There was only the sparkle of a dream to come back one day and reach even higher, to reach towards the summit. And the first step on that long journey to come back and climb Everest for herself was Kilimanjaro. But it happened almost by accident. Well, a friend of mine called me, actually, Lucy. We're still friends. And she was off to Africa. And she rang me to ask me what she should do there. And within a 10-minute conversation, we had decided that, you know, I was going to gate crash her holiday. I was going to come with her. And together we were going to climb this mountain, which is exactly what we did. And the thing about Kilimanjaro is that, you know, it's the highest mountain in Africa. Um, of the seven summits, it is the smallest. It's very easy in the sense that it isn't technical, but it's just high enough that it's a, a push on the last day because the air is thin, and, you know, it's very cold and all the rest. Uh, but walking through it is really a bit like walking from the equator to the North Pole in five days or six days. So you walk from banana plantations through to forest, through to tundra, and finally up onto the glacier. And it all happens in a very short space of time. Um, Then, of course, when you're on the top, you're looking out uh, at the African plains, and that's a lovely feeling. Kilimanjaro is a beautiful mountain. It rises 19,340 feet from the Tanzanian plains. It's the largest freestanding mountain in the world, and it is surrounded by some of the most beautiful ecosystems and wildlife on the planet, the Serengeti, the Masai Mara. At last, she writes, there was a hint of light in the expansive African sky, and we found ourselves standing on Kilimanjaro's caldera rim, looking out at a plump rising sun and far, far below, a blanket of pearly grey clouds stretching to the horizon. Not many people can climb mountains like she can, but even fewer can articulate what it feels like to stand on those summits and, more importantly, how that feeling changes you, what it teaches you about yourself and the world around you. And the lesson she learned on Kilimanjaro is perhaps one of the most important lessons of all. She describes it in terms of a classic Himalayan parable which starts with a Tibetan lama, a Tibetan monk, sitting cross-legged on the floor instructing his pupils. He takes a large vase and he puts in it some rocks right up to the rim and he asks them, is it full? And, you know, one of them says, yes. And then the lama takes some pebbles and 
puts them into the vase around the rocks and then asks, is it full again? And another pupil says, well, you know, catching on now. No, I think you can put some more stuff in. And he puts sand in and then he puts water in. And now it's properly, properly full. And he says, so, you know, what can we learn from this? And somebody says, well, you know, however much we fit into a day, uh, there's always more that we can do. And he said, no, the lesson is to put the rocks in the vase first. You know, do the important things first. And, you know, I have to remind myself of this every day because there are those niggling little admin things that get in the way. Um, and, it, you know, if we weren't careful, we could let our lives be taken over by boring, niggling little admin. Um, whereas there's so much more to be done in life. Um, and uh, it is important, I felt that there, to, to grab it by the throat and get on with it, you know, don't, don't procrastinate, just don't hang around, but, but just throw yourself into something that's important for you. Put the big rocks in first. Do what's important first. Because if you fill up that bowl with the sand and pebbles of admin and rubbish, then there's no room for what's truly important to you. The big rock for Rebecca was that first climb on Kilimanjaro, that first big mountain, because it was her first step towards manifesting, towards really voicing to the world her dream to climb Everest. Even though it was kind of mad, even though people thought she was crazy, she'd figured out what was important to her and she was determined to go after it. But it wasn't easy. One of the things I did battle with a bit was... Being this girl who grew up in Kent in the southeast of England, declaring she wanted to climb Everest, um, in an era when that really happened to people who grew up in North Wales or Sheffield, who had climbed for 15 or 20 years, who had progressed from the British Hills to the Alps and slowly to the Himalayas. And I felt nervous about sharing that ambition with other people. Um, Perhaps I was frightened of putting myself on a pedestal to be shot down. Perhaps I was frightened of failure. A million things. But I realised that, you know, I had to at some point share that or nothing that was going to happen. And um, I started climbing. I was living and working in London at the time. I started climbing on climbing walls in London. You know, met like-minded people. Ended up jumping on trains and going to Wales for the weekend and climbing in Scotland and such like. And it was really by doing, by putting the word out there that... I met people who had similar ambitions and, you know, one thing led to another. I mean, it was really, you know, drinking in the right pubs and talking to the right people. And, uh, you know, here I was, really an amateur, but I was incredibly lucky to be taken under the wing of what was a small gathering of people at that time, no more than three or four people, who had an idea to climb Everest. And that number grew till eventually we had 10 people. Um, and of that number, there were two or three extremely experienced mountaineers, um, the leader particularly, John Barry. And we climbed together. And then we went to the Alps together. And then suddenly it wasn't just climbing together, but it was actually training for an expedition. And that was what took us to Denali, was the idea of training on a big, cold mountain um, for Everest, hopefully the following year. The dream was coming together. She'd finally built up the courage to voice her true dreams, her true passions, and her true self. And because of that, she started to meet and hang around with the right people, and things started to happen. When we start orientating our lives according to our true passions, when we put the big rocks in first, we start manifesting the life and future we want. 
that future for Rebecca was Denali. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. We had the worst weather recorded in 13 years. <laughs> um, I mean, the worst bike trips on, on nine that we climbed isn't, again, technically very difficult. Um, but a friend of mine who climbed it said, don't underestimate that mountain because, you know, it's at a northerly latitude just below the Arctic Circle and it's high as well. And you know, people freeze dry on it. it, you know, it, it it's, it's really extreme weather. And I learned a lot there. I mean, I felt quite anxious about the skills I'd have to learn and, you know, rope work and glacier rescue, all that sort of stuff. But that sort of paled into insignificance uh, by comparison to the weather we experienced and just the very basic skills of looking after yourself in an extreme environment like that. Uh, we had planned to camp, um, but as it happened, tents were utterly useless for much of the time we were on the mountain. And uh, we spent eight days in a snow hole just sheltering ourselves from a storm that blew for, for that length of time. I think there was one day in those eight days when we could pop our heads out of the snow hole and then we were back down underground again. Eight days in a snow hole. Oh my God. And if you don't know what those are, they are basically a small cave in the snow which climbers dig out by hand and hollow out in order to shelter from wind and storms in extreme conditions. And that is the issue with Denali. It is a beautiful mountain. I was at the base of the East Face on the Don Sheldon Amphitheater, and it was maybe the most beautiful mountain landscape I've ever seen in my life. Just huge, huge peaks of the Alaskan range on all sides, absolutely pristine and vast as far as the eye could see. And Denali, which means the great one in native Athabascan, rising 20,310 feet in its center. But it's also brutal. It's the third highest of the seven summits. But by some reckoning, it's actually the tallest mountain in the world because its vertical rise, which is measured from its base to the summit rather than the height from sea level, is 18,000 feet, 6,000 feet taller than Mount Everest and the greatest vertical rise of any mountain on Earth. It's also one of the most dangerous. The upper half is permanently covered in snow and glaciers, some more than 30 miles across. In winter, temperatures can reach minus 83 degrees centigrade. Gusts of wind race past at 200 miles an hour. Outside of Antarctica, the summit of Denali is the coldest place on Earth. In summer, a mere 40% of those that attempt it will stand upon its peak. 
In winter, only a handful have ever succeeded, and many die in the process each year. So that is what's going through Rebecca's head as she shelters in a snow hole with four other climbers for eight days during one of the worst storms Denali has ever seen. You know, the snow was constantly falling and on top of our uh, snow hole, so the roof would be sagging a little bit all the time. It was just like being in a living coffin. And we tried to keep an air hole open and sort of prod it with a ski stick to keep it open at night. And, you know, inevitably we fell asleep and that didn't happen and we snowed in. And I sort of be lying there dozing, trying to sleep and rest and thinking, you know, do we die of carbon monoxide poisoning in here? How does it work? You know? <laughs> and we did wake up every morning. Um, but uh, I was with a great bunch of people, but yeah, the humour did run out after a while. And, you know, I read and reread books and <sighs> you just had to try and keep your spirit up. But it was tough on a couple of occasions uh, and incredibly wonderful when we were released from it. Just extraordinary feeling like being in a living coffin. And what Rebecca doesn't say is that she's actually claustrophobic too. So it took her days and days to get over the sheer terror of just being sealed into this freezing underground hole with a very real chance of dying either by exposure, by carbon monoxide poisoning, or just simply by being buried alive by an avalanche. Terrifying, just absolutely terrifying. It was tough, um, but, um, you know, eventually we were able to dig our way out of that snow hole and the weather was fine enough for us to climb up um, onto the ridge where actually we were pinned down in storm for another three days. So it was a tough old climb and we sort of pushed and climbed it at the 11th hour. I got up there at 9 o'clock in the evening. Um, it was May, you know, you pretty much have 24 hours of daylight and we got down safely again and... It was incredibly sobering because I was constantly worried about um, my family at home. There was no way of communicating. We, we, we got these reports that it was terrible weather, that it was being reported in the media. Um, there were 11 people that died on the mountain while we were on the mountain. So it was serious stuff. And there were many lessons I learned. And actually, one that I would really like to share is that of risk. Um, because... You know, we were we were fortunate that none of our team were killed, but there were people close enough to us that one was forced to think about mountaineering as a risky pursuit if I was going to continue this and, and, and climb to Everest. And I think the conclusion I've drawn over the years is that risk isn't straightforward. There, you know, there are different types of risks you can take, and some you can take with your eyes wide open. You know, there are climbers. British climbers, um, a whole generation, you know, many, many who were knowingly pushing the envelope and doing extraordinary things and very, very sadly died, mostly in the Himalayas. Um, and then there's the sort of, you know, the pilot error. We, we can slip, we can fail to clip in, we can, whatever it is, you know, where mistakes are made. And then there's a third type of risk, which actually we have no control over an objective risk of, you know, being unlucky to get pulmonary edema. And there was a Swiss guide who died in a snow hole next to us. He must have been at that altitude hundreds of times, but he was unlucky that year. Or, you know, an avalanche might break 6,000 feet above your head. So, you know, the only way you can eliminate that sort of risk is by not going to the mountains at all. Um, and 
we have sort of developed a culture in many countries where we want to try to eliminate risk. You know, none of us, you know, it would be lovely if we didn't have any, but the reality is life is risky. And that's incredibly important to be able to face risk like that and, and grow with it. And rather than retreat into something which is safe all the time, there's not much growth there, I would say. And you know, by doing that, then you're, you're better equipped when there's real danger to deal with. I personally fear that the field of mountains really helped me in that, in an acceptance that there is risk, life is risky. And if you can have an acceptance of that, then it's easier to walk out into the world without fear. And I think that's an important thing that we need to do. It's almost counterintuitive. If you can acknowledge risk instead of bearing it away or trying to keep yourself completely safe, then you can walk into the world without fear. Because fear isn't beaten by hiding from it. It's beaten by acknowledging it and still standing up and still facing it head on. Dare to be truly alive. That's something I say at the end of every show, because living life to the full means taking risks, not just physical risks. And by all means, don't go climbing the world's highest mountains if that's not your thing. It can also mean emotional risks, career risks. It means trying new things and daring to be different, daring to be true to yourself. Denali was conquered. She was on her way. Next stop was Everest. It's a, a joyous approach, you know, walking through the foothills of, of the Himalayan. And we did it in a very measured way. We took at least two weeks to get to the base camp. We actually went to the pace of the slowest acclimatizing, if that makes sense. So if somebody was feeling a bit rough and had headaches and stuff, we just waited until they felt better. So when we were at the base camp, we were in pretty good shape in terms of acclimatization. The camp, I, I like to think of it a bit like... Um, you know, a pop concert in a farmer's field. I mean, there are a whole bunch of people who aren't normally there. So all these little tents pop up and, you know, it's a sort of outdoor life and it's quite fun and you're talking to different people. And, of course, the shepherds are an integral part of that. But we arrived at the base camp and very quickly there was talk of going through the Kumbuwais Fall. And the Kumbuwais Fall on the south side of the mountain is the first obstacle to overcome. Um, it is a frozen waterfall, essentially, um, crashing down the mountain. It's not moving fast like a, move, like a waterfall, but it is still moving. So it's a very unstable area comprising these huge blocks of ice. And it takes maybe six, seven hours to climb through it. And you're very aware at every minute that you're in it, that you're in an extremely vulnerable position that it might collapse while you're in it. And, you know, I knew the stories of this ice fall before I went, and the next day we were going to go through it. And I wasn't ready. Quite right, because the Kumbu ice fall is no joke. It is one of the most dangerous sections of the climb, claiming dozens of lies over the years. And there's lots of ways it can get you. There's huge crevasses you could fall into, and you actually have to cross over those crevasses with these ladders laid flat and just balance over them with the darkness screaming up from you below, which just looks terrifying. There's icefall, of course, which is happening all the time, and avalanches, including one in 2014 that tragically took the lives of 16 climbers on the single deadliest day on the mountain ever recorded. So not feeling ready is absolutely normal and quite expected. I felt that my heart 
must surely be visible pounding through my down jacket because I was so terrified. I was completely terrified. And I was looking at everybody else who seemed quite calm. And um, so I thought, I better play it this way. And we just sort of walked through the dark, got to the bottom of it, put our crampons on and started going. And like anything, once, once you're moving, once you're actually acting and, and, and taking steps, it seemed very much easier. Um, and to be fair, you know, we were halfway through it before we could actually see it because it was dark for the first half and that made quite a difference, very helpful. And then when the sun came up, it was exquisitely beautiful. So, interesting enough, the first journey was probably the easiest. For me, it was the repeat journeys, which were more frightening because it had changed. You know, a ladder you'd crossed was now at the bottom of a crevasse and you had to pick your way around and find another path. So, you know, I, I, I sort of slightly blinded the race the first time and I became increasingly aware of them as we made repeated journeys through it. And that's the thing. To make the summit of Everest, you don't just do it in one push. That would be virtually impossible in terms of sheer endurance and also in terms of acclimatization. At the summit of Everest, one third of the amount of oxygen is absorbed into the blood. One third. If you were to take someone from sea level to the top without acclimatization, they would be unconscious in minutes and dead soon after that. So you don't just climb Everest once, you actually climb it multiple times, going up and down with gear and equipment, waiting for your body to acclimatize and waiting for the right window when it is safe to climb. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And the hardest moment was yet to come. The darkest, most difficult episode on that climb by a very, very long way for me was having gone up to the South Pole to the high camp where we might have made a bid for the summit but didn't. And there were lots of reasons for that. So I, I was really struggling with that. And then on top of that, it looked like there really wouldn't be another opportunity that season. And I was thinking, can I get myself back to this mountain? Can I go through all that build-up and sponsorship and effort to get back? Or is there the slimmest of chances that, that, that I can climb again now? Um, and, you know, I still want to do very badly, but it was a point when my rational brain was telling me, this is unlikely. Um, you know, we'd been high, we'd come down, we'd been at camp two and above for approaching three weeks. Um, we were pretty skinny and tired. Uh, the season was coming to an end. The forecast was bad for high winds. And it was really a few days of licking my wounds and feeling very low about it all. She thought the opportunity had gone, maybe forever. They had missed the window, and then a member of their team had got himself in trouble. He'd fallen and become snowblind, and the leader of the trip, John Barry, was forced to leave the high camp and go down with him. That left Rebecca on her own on Camp 4, the highest camp before the summit, at 26,000 feet, on the edge of what they call the death zone, the most dangerous part of the whole climb. She thought she was going to have to retreat. There was no way she could go up alone. It would just be too dangerous. But then she saw two figures slowly inching their way up the mountain towards her, and she began to hope. As they became closer, it became very clear that they were Sherpas on our expedition. Um, I'm Sankami Cherry, who I knew well, who I'd retreated down the mountain with, and Cherry Jambu, this younger Sherpa. Um, and uh, they came up, and that just 
opened the doors of possibility again for me to climb. And then the following day, we gave it another crack. And the forecast was still bad, um, but we thought we're not going to know unless we get ourselves back up into the South Cole. So we, we climbed back up the lots we faced in South Cole. And it was very different from the time I'd been there before because previously there had been very many people and now there was the four of us and then coming up behind us there were three other climbers and nobody else. And when we woke up in the middle of the night thinking, are we going to go or not, looking down in the valley below us into the western coombe there was very heavy black cloud and lightning. <laughs> um, so a lot of deliberating as to whether this was the, the right night to climb. But after about an hour and a half, uh, we were still deliberating and we looked out of the tent and we saw three little lights of the other climbers slowly moving up above us at the South Cole. And uh, I, I can't talk for the Sherpas, but I tell you, in that moment, I thought, that's it, we're going. <laughs> There's absolutely no way that I'm missing a second opportunity here. And so we set out um, in the dark and we started climbing. We were on steepish ground, and um, <laughs> this sounds really, really unprofessional, but two of our head torches out of three batteries died. We had one head torch between us, and Ang Pasang was leading at that point. He literally had to turn his head to shine the light so we knew where to step up the mountain. Um, but slightly because of the paranoia climbers have of carrying excess weight, you know, we, you don't want to carry anything that you're not going to need. And there was a point then when Ampersand Cherry Cherries sort of questioned whether we should carry on. But we did, and the sun rose and everything looked a little bit rosier. You know, this was 1993 and we had the upper reaches of Everest completely and utterly to ourselves. It was just extraordinary. And there was fresh snow, no tracks in the snow, nothing. It felt, even in the moment, unreal that we had that privilege. Climbing along the summit ridge, which is very narrow and very precipitous left and right down onto the glaciers below, I had a sense of uh, this being quite unreal, that here I was at the 11th hour and we just kept sort of pushing those doors and we found ourselves in this position. And once you climb over the Hillary Step, which is the last obstacle, the ridge broadens a bit and it's snow-covered. And, you know, there's absolutely no doubt in your mind that whatever happens, you're going to walk. It is a walk, the last, you know, 15 minutes to the summit. And I had a big smile on my face because I just thought, goodness, you know, how, how has this happened? It was an extraordinary moment, and I did realise I was the first British woman to climb Everest. And um, they hadn't been to the summit before either. They're very demonstrative people. They were extremely happy, and that shared moment was was very special. Um, you know, I, I talk about you know the privilege of being there, just the three of us. But had it taken it down to just me, I know I could never ever have done that on my own. It, it just that there's no way I could have found the motivation to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And uh, it was just like they were tugging me up that mountain. It was it was definitely a shared experience. And I've never felt that togetherness before or since in quite that way. Her dream had come true. She had reached the summit of Everest, the highest place on earth. And to have it all to herself was so rare and so precious. Just her and the two Sherpas she climbed with 
jumping up and down with joy on the roof of the world. And that shared experience, that wonderful moment of achievement together that she had never experienced before or felt in the same way since, taught her something really important too. The biggest lesson I drew from Everest was that of the team. I, I, I can't, I, really, I struggle to think, how was I so slow to learn that lesson in life? <laughs> you know, I mean, I was 31 when I was on Everest, and up until that point, I felt self-reliant and, you know, independent and that I control my own life. Um, total, total fabrication in my own mind. You know, we all are dependent on each other. We are social creatures. And I think I'd seen it in a strange sort of way as a dependency and that I should be able to stand on my own two feet. And I came back from Everest seeing it as what makes us human, um, an interdependency, um, the joy of working with other people, the realisation that only with other people can you make things happen. And it changed my life completely. It did change her life. And not just because of that lesson, though it would be one that she would apply and coach and speak about many times to come. But also because she was the first British woman to climb Everest. And that meant that her life would never be the same again. She was awarded an MBE for her achievement. She wrote a book. And she also started to dream, to dare to dream of the Seven Summits. On the way back from Denali, she had made a deal with herself. If she managed to summit Everest, she would just keep going. By that stage, she would have done three of the seven. So why not, right? She could take her time. She could take a lifetime over it if she wanted and savor the whole experience. It would be a wonderful goal to work towards over a number of years. There was just one problem. When I got back from Everest, a few months passed before I focused my efforts again on the seven summits. And I realized then, after talking to DHL, who had sponsored us on Everest, that if I weren't the first British woman to do that, there would be no sponsorship, basically. They said, we'll sponsor you mountain by mountain, but the minute it's clear that you won't be first, the money stops flowing. So there was another British woman who wanted to climb the Seven Summits as well. Her name was Jeanette Harrison. Um, she climbed Everest just a season after me, but with regards to Seven Summits, she was ahead of me. So I had to run and climb four mountains in five months. And the first of those was Elbrus. Elbrus is the highest mountain in Europe, topping out at 18,510 feet. It's located in Russia. It's a beautiful mountain. And after Everest, it was a breeze. She nailed it. Four down. Then it got harder. The next mountain was going to be more of a challenge. That was Karsten's Pyramid in Irinjaya or Western Papua. And of the seven mountains, this was the only technical mountain that requires a good degree of rock climbing skills. And it was hugely important to me in very many ways because I didn't have the time, because of this time pressure that I had to be the first, to dedicate two or three years or whatever it would have taken for me to build up the skills to be confident to climb that in a way that I would have liked to have climbed it. And so I compromised in that I invited along a friend, Graham McMahon, who also happened to be a superb climber. 
and uh, he was going to be the one who was going to be leading the routes for me. The compromise she's talking about is the fact that she didn't lead the routes. She followed or seconded them as her friend Graham, a more experienced rock climber, basically took the rope up and she followed behind. In her eyes, that's something of a compromise. In the eyes of some extreme mountaineers, that's not perfect etiquette, perhaps. But for most of us, that doesn't make the slightest bit of difference at all. She still had to climb every inch of it and she still had to make it all the way to the summit by herself. But there's another difficulty associated with the Kartens Pyramid, and that is its remoteness. Located on the Indonesian island of Papua New Guinea, it requires a big jungle trek just to get to the base of the mountain. There's no real infrastructure, and should anything go wrong, you're on your own. But we took a little twin otter um, from the coast up into the mountains, landed on a little run runway that was just cut in the forest and walked to a village of the local people who you know, lived very much as they had done for hundreds and hundreds of years. And this was the place that was undiscovered by Western man until 1938. And so they were living as they had all those years. They were living off uh, root crops they grew and, you know, the old pig was going around and uh, they were dressed in penis cords and grass skirts. We walked from the village through the forest for two or three days and then up through the swampland to Carstens Pyramid, which is a rocky outcrop in, in the middle of the sort of swampy land. And we had no guidebook, um, there were no very few people who'd climbed it, and the only information I had about it was from a lengthy conversation with an American climber who had talked me through the route on the telephone <laughs> before I went. And he said, you kind of go along and there's a rock, this particular shape, and if you start there and climb up the face, you get to the ridge, and then turn left and follow the ridge, and you abseil down these three notches, and finally you get to the summit. Um, but we started climbing, Graham first, of course, and it was very spiky, very firm rock. Absolutely a pleasure to climb, and we shot up to the ridge, full of confidence. Um, and then we had to, with this first notch we found, we abseiled down into it, and I uh, thought, okay, I'm in, I'm in Graham's hands now. <laughs> and uh, I hope to God he can get us out of here. And he just pulled down the upsell rope and then we were totally committed. And, you know, he just read that rock like a, a book and he danced up it. And I followed him and we did this three times over. Um, and eventually we got to the top. Five down. Not easy. I mean, no guidebook. Just like furiously writing notes as some bloke who climbed it years ago tells you what to look out for. But she made it. And now there are only two left. Jeanette Harrison, the other woman, racing her to be the first British woman to climb all seven summits, was hot on her heels, though. So she had to go straight from Indonesia all the way to South America and climb the absolutely fierce 22,837-foot-high Aconcagua in Argentina. It's a tough mountain at any time. But Rebecca was forced to climb it out of season, which made it 10 times harder. And she only had one shot to get to the summit, no matter the conditions, or she would be pipped to the post. This would be the most difficult climb of all the seven summits. I needed to get that one in um, before flying to Vincent in Antarctica. And normally people would be climbing Aconcagua in January or February. Uh, in the summer months in the southern hemisphere um, but if I did that I was going to miss the boat so we had to bring it forward and climb it in October 
I talked to many people about this and the advice again and again and again was don't do it. You know, it's incredibly cold, uh, very high winds and, you know, people just don't go there in October. Um, but finally I found somebody to talk to who gave me a slightly different story. He was Chilean, he was a pilot and a climber and he'd flown over the mountain many times and probably knew it better than anybody. And he said, you might be lucky. You know, the, the wind might drop. <laughs> so I thought, we might be lucky, you know, and I just hung on to that little thread of positivity and, and off we went. We did push the boat out, to be fair. We went, four of us, um, because I knew it, it was, you know, high altitude, it's about 23,000 feet, so if anybody were to get corner edema or get sick, we need to be able to break into two groups of two, which is exactly what happened. So in the end of the day, I was climbing with John from Everest and myself. There were two other people on the mountain, two British climbers, um, and we were hanging out at the high camp for a couple of days. Um, and, you know, I mean, talk about the winds. It was literally like being a leaf in the park, you know, when you see leaves just being blown over and over and over again. <laughs> you know, it's blown off my feet and dumped on the rocks and bashed and bruised. She is not joking. She writes, the wind blew and by God it was cold. I made the mistake of taking off my gloves for 20 seconds, no more. The warmth drained from my fingers like water from a jug, and I felt a panic rising inside me. Stumbling across the rocks, I threw myself into the tent where my climbing companion, John, mercifully cupped my stiffened hands in his, and then, prizing open my fingers, he gazed in horror at my palms. They were dappled in ugly patches of frost nip. I wondered in that moment, if we would make it. She nearly didn't. She was huddled in her tent, that window of opportunity getting smaller and smaller. The other two people she was with actually went for it and came back defeated. It was too cold. It looked like she would lose the chance and lose the seven summits too. But too cold for them doesn't mean too cold for Rebecca. So John and her, despite the odds, set out for one last desperate summit attempt. And it was like we just kept pushing against doors that looked like they were firmly shut. But when we leant on them a little bit, they opened. So, you know, we, through the wind being blown over, and then we looked up at a ridge and we thought, if we have to climb that ridge in this wind, it's impossible. But we went to the ridge and we didn't have to climb along it. We just hopped over the top of it into this high valley with a footpath. I'm not kidding, you know, up this high valley. And we kept going and we climbed above the wind into still air. And it was bitterly cold, but we didn't have that battering from the weather. And then we got to a point where we had to choose between one summit peak and the other summit peak. And we weren't sure which was the highest of the two. <laughs> and uh, we think, OK, I think it's that one. And by this time, it, you know, the altitude had kicked in and I felt really nauseous. And we took forever to get to the top of this peak. And we knew from the guidebook, of course, that we'd left at base camp, um, that there was a cross at the top of this mountain, it being a Catholic country. And there was no cross. And we thought, we've climbed the wrong one. We have to go, to go down and up again. And then, and then John spotted uh, the crucifix lying flat on the rocks. And we realised we, we were on the peak. And um, we turned around pretty quickly and... Once again, we were benighted, but properly this time, we, we couldn't find our camp and we just 
huddled together like a couple of penguins um, and waited for the first light of day and made our way back down that mountain. It was an exciting climb. Huddled together like penguins. I love that imagery. And they did. They huddled in the night and cold and it was desperate and dangerous, but she was happy too, ecstatic because she'd climbed six out of the seven highest summits in the world. She was ahead of Jeanette. If she could reach the summit of Mount Vincent in Antarctica, she would be the first British woman to climb the highest peaks on the planet. And she had a plane waiting to take her there, to take her to the last of the seven summits. We flew over in this Hercules plane and landed on a blue ice runway. Um, And then we waited a few days and then we got into this little plane that had been hibernating for the winter in this little icy hangar and they'd kind of poured it out and stuck the wings on and stuck the propeller back on and some very brave pilot had tested it um, and then we climbed aboard and flew to the base camp of Vincent um, I mean by this time I realised that I had a clear run you know we were on the first flight to Antarctica that season so there might have been a temptation to be a little bit too complacent and that would have been a mistake in Antarctica because it's a pretty fierce environment. (laughs) You know, it is really, really, really seriously cold. You feel under attack in a way the moment you stick your head out of the tent because the light is so bright. I mean, it's energising. You've got 24 hours of daylight, um, but very intense. Um, But I think we had an advantage because straight off Aconcagua, which is like 23,000 feet, we were well acclimatised. And Vincent, by comparison, was a much smaller mountain. Um, So it it was, you know, but for the cold, it was fairly straightforward. I don't think many people would call the highest mountain in Antarctica, the coldest place on the planet, straightforward. But by that time, Rebecca was so close to the finish line. She had beaten the crux, the wind and cold of Aconcagua. She had defeated the remoteness and technical difficulty of the Cartons Pyramid. She climbed Elbrus, the highest mountain in Europe. She'd survived eight days in a snow hole with a bunch of smelly old climbers, stood on the top of Africa and reached the very pinnacle of the world. Nothing was going to stop her now. She put her head down and climbed. It took seven days in all until finally the summit ridge appeared before her, bathed in freezing sunshine. The view from the top, she writes, was so splendidly rare and lovely, the purest white snow, untainted, stretching as far as we could see, with just the very tops of a scattering of mountains protruding above the vertical miles of glacial ice, like islands in a frozen sea. We had time on the summit, proper time, you know, no rush to get back by dark. Um, and we hung out there for a good hour, an hour and a half. And I cried. <laughs> I, you know, it was such a relief and so sad all at once. You know, this extraordinary colourful chapter that I've been living for the last what, three or four years um, that had come to an end. I think that there is also a lesson from it about, you know, looking beyond one summit to the other. You know, always looking to the next and drawing the lessons you've learned from one and discarding things that haven't worked and moving on to the next and continuing to learn. And, you know, metaphorically, I think if we can keep that going through life um, and constantly grow and and, and draw from those experiences, um, then, I don't know, it's worked for me. It's a fulfilling way to, to pass the years. 
There's always more summits, more mountains to climb. The end of an adventure or even just a chapter in your life is hard. It can be really upsetting, but it's also the beginning of something new. We should look forward to that challenge, that growth. But that doesn't mean we should just push ourselves relentlessly. And that perhaps is the most important lesson that the mountains have taught Rebecca. One of the things that I'm growing increasingly interested in and aware of, I think, is the idea of sustainability. I mean, hopefully, you know, we live into late years and we want to keep actors. Um, but so often uh, in my own life and talking to other people, we are on what I might call the vertical axis of achievement, you know, striving for the summit, which is something that I've talked about for a quarter of a century. Um, but I'm more and more aware of the horizontal line of resilience, of reflection, of rejuvenation, of well-being. And thinking that we need to focus on that horizontal line with the same intent as we do the vertical line. So put simply, if you're on the vertical line of achievement constantly, you burn, you burn out, put simply. You know, it, it's just not possible. And nor do you have time to appreciate being there. And if you're on that vertical t- line of achievement, so often there are rippling effects that affect one's health, um, people around you, families break up, all those sort of things, if you don't also realise and think about that horizontal line. And in climbing, there's so many metaphors for that. Actually, it's about expending as little energy as possible um, over a long period of time. And, you know, you have to do that to allow your body to acclimatise. That's not going to hurry up for anybody. And you, you have to be patient for that. Um, you have to take your time. And there's something rather beautiful about being forced to slow down so keeping your health focused on that horizontal axis allows you to perform on the vertical certainly my own experience you know i've had a couple of episodes in my life where i've been stressed to the point that it's been manifested in a physical way and i've been really worried um, and i've had to step back from that Um, and i know so many people who have done that and i think it's a trap that we can very easily fall into and you know if we could think more about pace and balance and that horizontal as well as vertical axes, then we would live healthier lives, which would be to benefit not just to ourselves, but everybody around us. And that's very important. It's so true. And I've never heard it put like that before. We are so focused in the West, particularly on that vertical axis. There's nothing else. Climbing the ladder, achieving our goals that we forget that if all you do is climb upwards, you are building the narrowest of towers. The slightest breeze may just blow it down. And we see that all over, don't we? Stress, anxiety, and failed relationships, and depression, unhappiness. Because achievements shouldn't just be measured by that vertical axis. The measure of a life should not be just how tall the towers we build are, but how broad and secure and safe they are against any weather too. What's the point in rushing if you're too stressed to enjoy the journey and too burnt out to enjoy the top? Life, like climbing mountains, is about being brave enough to follow your ambitions, but humble enough to be grateful for where you already are. We clutter our lives to such an extent in this environment we create for ourselves, which is comfortable, um, but there are many distractions all the time. And in the mountains, life is simple. You know, you, you get up early, you, you have to 
think about what you're going to eat and where you're going to walk. You're surrounded by this extraordinary, extraordinary nature, uh, which just fills you up. You know, all of the aesthetics of it, I just, you know, the, the landscape I absolutely love. And I think that scale of it I'm talking about, it sort of allows you to have that helicopter view of things where you can almost look down on the world and see this very tiny little person in the grandeur of this landscape. So it offers a lightness as well. Although we're looking always through our own pair of eyes and, and you know, our lives seem incredibly important and all that matters, when you're there, somehow you get this view from above that, yeah, but you're one tiny bit of this extraordinary universe. Um, and that, it just makes me feel light somehow. I never feel better than when I'm in the mountains. She writes... There is a vastness that makes one feel at once humbly insignificant and paradoxically acutely alive and confident in one's place in the world. I love that. That's what real wonder and awe is and what nature, vast nature, can make us feel. Infinitesimally small, but part of something incomprehensibly large. When our life is aligned with our passions and our intrinsic wants, when it's aligned with who we are inside and not who we think we're expected to be, we are in flow with the universe. We can achieve anything, even, perhaps, standing on the seven highest summits in the world. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for taking us on this incredible adventure. And remember, you can actually go on an adventure with Rebecca too. She leads treks and climbs in the Himalayas and Kilimanjaro and elsewhere. And I know she would love to take you out for an awesome, life-changing adventure. You can find her at RebeccaStevens.com. So we're at the end of the story, and I just want to say thank you again to all of you for listening, for being part of this community. Remember to help spread the word. Tell a friend, a fellow explorer, someone who needs a little bit of inspiration or a lift. Please sign up also for the newsletter at armchair-explorer, where you can book trips inspired by the show. Drop me a line. I would love to work with you one-on-one to make that dream trip happen wherever it may be. So follow your passions, climb those mountains, and don't stop looking for that wonder. Because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.